If there's one person I would blame, I suppose it's Joseph Stalin. So obviously this Turkish intervention has a sort of terrifying impact on the Armenians and, and on their psyche. Very simply because the Karabakh issue is as ingrained in Armenian society as it is in, in Azerbaijani society. And he yelled at me. He was like, how dare you? How, how dare you tell me about meeting an Armenian and becoming friends with them, you know? Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. I'm recording this on Friday, October 9th. And on today's show, you will hear from several experts about the escalation in fighting over Nagorno-Karabakh, the predominantly Armenian-populated breakaway republic in Azerbaijan, and home to the longest-running war on former Soviet soil. Since the late 1980s, the conflict has killed roughly 20,000 people and made refugees of hundreds of thousands more. Since the most recent escalation that began on September 27, 2020, already the second resumption of hostilities this year, several hundred soldiers have reportedly died in combat along with several dozen civilians. The self-declared Nagorno-Karabakh Republic enjoys close ties to Armenia, though Yerevan has not formally recognized the breakaway republic's independence while Azerbaijan insists that this area is its own territory. Over the past two weeks, Medusa has reported on events in the region, including an interview with a Russian TV correspondent who was filming on the ground in the town of Martuni when it came under Azerbaijani shelling. And we published a summary of the region's modern and even ancient history from Medusa editors Dmitry Kuznets and Dmitry Kartsev. As I record this on October 9th, Azerbaijan's president declared that his nation's troops have supposedly broken through and destroyed the so-called line of contact that separates the breakaway republic from Azerbaijan, allegedly destroying Armenian fortifications that have stood for 30 years. The president also says Azerbaijani troops have captured another nine villages in the contested area, though Armenian officials dispute some of this. No one can stand against the Azerbaijani soldier. That was the president's message on Friday, as diplomats from both Armenia and Azerbaijan met in Moscow for talks. In fact, while I was recording... The introduction you're listening to right now, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov announced that he just mediated negotiations between the foreign ministers of both Armenia and Azerbaijan, and they actually came to a ceasefire agreement. That just happened moments ago. It will take effect on October 10th, which is when this episode is going to be published. The ceasefire seems to be fairly limited right now, but there's been a pledge to engage in further negotiations. So that's good news, assuming the bullets and artillery shells and missiles indeed stop flying. Now, before we get into this week's interviews, the interviews of today's show, I want to stress that this conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh is enormously complex. Obviously, it's a very contested subject, and neither this podcast episode nor the reporting available already at Medusa constitutes a comprehensive look at the war. I think it's only common sense, but I wanted to put that out there explicitly. So please bear that in mind when listening to today's episode and whenever pondering this issue generally. What we've seen over the last 10 years confirms how dangerous it is. A massive a loss of life, heavy destruction, use of heavy weapons, 
and all this in a area which borders Turkey uh, and Iran, where inter- also international pipelines go through heavily populated areas. That's Thomas Duvall, a senior fellow at Carnegie Europe and the author of several books about the Caucasus, including Black Garden, Armenia and Azerbaijan Through Peace and War in 2003, and most recently, Beyond Frozen Conflict, which he co-authored with Nicholas von Twickel. I asked Thomas why he says the Nagorno-Karabakh dispute remains the most dangerous conflict in the post-Soviet space. Obviously, it was a, was a conflict zone back in the 1990s, and the war went on for, for several years then, and there were probably 20,000 people died, and there was mass displacement. It was also a low-tech war then, so the weapons weren't very heavy back then. They were kind of low-grade Soviet weapons. Now we're seeing these very long-range missiles flying from either side, which obviously have the capacity to do immense damage. And, and we've, for a week now, we've, we've seen shelling of the Karabakh Armenians in the city of, of Stepanakert and, and, and also, according to Amnesty International, others use of, of cluster bombs. So, so, you know, a severe humanitarian uh, impact for both sides. Would you say that, is there one side that benefits more from peace than the other? Or do both sides benefit from continued hostilities or sort of in terms of the two, in terms of Armenia and Azerbaijan, and I suppose if the breakaway republic itself is considered sort of a unique actor here, how would you say that the benefits of peace stack up versus the benefits of continued conflict? Well, I mean, what we've had since 1994, which was when the Armenians won the the conflict of the 1990s and captured an enormous amount of territory, not just Karabakh itself, but the the territories around Karabakh, which had no autonomous status in Soviet times, were entirely populated by Azerbaijanis, were home to about half a million people. Uh, what we've had then is is a, is a status quo which has benefited the Armenian side. They, they've had this enormous empty buffer zone which, where hundreds of thousands of, of Azerbaijanis used to live, and they've controlled that, and that has, in their view, protected Karabakh. So clearly, the status quo was more or less acceptable to the Armenian side, although there was no peace, but but it was unacceptable to the Azerbaijani side. Now you, you can blame you can also you can blame both sides for the failure to make a break breakthrough in peace negotiations. There was a there was a pretty there have been some pretty sophisticated documents on the table, which which would have allowed for the return of populations and and and, and many positive things. But neither side has ever signed them, or, or both sides haven't agreed at the same time. So clearly, what we're seeing in the last 10 days is, is an attempt by Azerbaijan to reset the status quo and to recover lost lands by military means. That they, they talk about liberation, they talk about years of frustration. And of course, you can completely understand that, that it's very hard, incredibly difficult for a country to, to put up with losing so much territory over such a long time. On the other hand, the Armenian side say that basically the, the Azerbaijanis want to destroy the Armenians of Karabakh, that, 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 this, that they really want to just get rid of them altogether. And, and this is completely unacceptable. So you've got sort of two, two aspects of international law. One, one occupation of Azerbaijani land, and, and, and second, a potential kind of existential threat to the Karabakh Armenians. And you've got these two grievances in collision. But, but you know, let's be clear that the, the, the fighting was definitely started by the Azerbaijani side. I don't think they're really denying that. In this escalation, you mean? In this escalation, and and they're very much setting the agenda here. If Armenia benefited most from the status quo, and Azerbaijan is now rocking the boat, so to speak, by spearheading this latest escalation, 
What does that mean for the stalled peace process? I asked Jeffrey Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at U.S. National Defense University, what he thinks it would take to get Yerevan and Baku back to the negotiating table. His comments here on this podcast, I, I should note, are his own observations and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. government. At this point, I think we've seen enough changes of the status quo on the ground that it's hard to imagine going back to uh, entirely to the status quo ante. At some point, I imagine Azerbaijan is going to need a negotiated peace, but my sense is that they will push to have whatever ceasefire is reached reflect the the changes that have taken place on the ground at at a minimum over the course of the last week or so. Do you have a sense of whether or not they've they've been making any gains on the ground or how, what what do we know about I mean obviously we're recording this on at 1 p.m. Eastern daylight time on on Thursday October 8th so things are changing fast but what 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 do we know so far about what's taking place? Well, there have definitely been some announcements of towns in the occupied territories surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh changing hands. Particularly, these are in the two southern regions of Fizuli and Jabayil. I would have to go and, and look at sort of the latest claims that have been made as, as to how many of those towns the, the Azerbaijani side has claimed to, to take. And, and of course, the, you can't always get confirmation from both sides because they have differing interests in terms of how they portray the situation on the ground as well. But I think it's pretty clear that the the line of contact, as it were, that's existed more or less since 2016, when the last really large flare-up uh, took place, although not on the scale of what's going on right now, saw some, some changes along the line. But certainly, even that status, uh, even that map seems to be in flux right now. And I imagine that when all of this is, is over, when all is said and done, that it'll reflect the, the new reality on the ground, at least to some degree. Is, is it your sense that time is sort of on Azerbaijan's side, that their military is getting stronger, faster than Armenia's? Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it is. The big difference is that Azerbaijan has energy wealth and so they've been able to splash out a lot of resources on upgrading the military. And they've bought some fairly high-end equipment from a whole range of, of partners, including Russia. But as we've seen a lot in the last week or so from Turkey, from Israel, from others. And Armenia doesn't have the same financial resources. It's also a more democratic country, so they have to spend more on, on butter as opposed to guns as well. But as a consequence, I think the the physical balance of forces between the militaries is shifting in Azerbaijan's favor. Now, of course, Azerbaijan, and particularly the, the Aliyev government, faces a lot of internal problems. I think, in part, the timing of the, the current outbreak um, owes something to efforts to shore up legitimacy domestically in Baku, and how that internal political situation plays out, of course, affects how much time really is on, on Azerbaijan's side, because even if the military uh, gap between the two sides is growing, if the political situation in Baku becomes increasingly volatile, and if um, Aliyev's hold on power becomes increasingly tenuous, then of course that makes the the ability to, to prosecute a, a war somewhat more questionable. For some insights into how the Azerbaijani government operates and what it's like to be political in Azerbaijan, I turn to journalist Arzu Gebullah, 
who left the country, her homeland, more than six years ago after the state media started calling her a traitor. She lives in Turkey today and works as a freelance journalist. I got noticed by the by my favorite government, <laughs> Azerbaijan, uh, which didn't really like an Azerbaijani writing for how they call it Armenian paper. Some even claimed that I was writing in Armenian, even though I don't speak a word of it. And that kind of led to this very unpleasant experience that I had for that lasted I don't know, for like two years, maybe more. It was online harassment, defamation. I was accused of many things. I think the the, the most important one of them was treason. And I think that kind of distanced me. Accused like by by actual law enforcement or by like online trolls or how deep did it go? Not the law enforcement, but it went as far as, you know, the pro-government newspapers publishing articles about questioning my background, basically, you know, making up stories about where my dad and mom were from and things like that. And I think that was like the other extent of it, like how they were coming after my family members and the things that they were saying about them. Are you disaffected now? Are you a dissident abroad? Like, how would you define, how would you kind of identify yourself? Other than you're a journalist. I mean, I struggled a lot for, for, for a really long time with the word dissident and exile. Uh, because I refused to accept that, first of all, I wasn't living in exile, that I would not be able to go back home or that I was a dissident because for me, I was just, you know, doing my job. But right now, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't trigger me in any way as it used to. So I'm like, okay, you call me dissident, okay. <laughs> you call me dissident exile, fine, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever works, you know. 2014. April 2014 was the last time I was there. That's when, that's right before um, this campaign began. And yeah, that was the last time. There was a brief moment, I think in 2016, maybe, or 20, 2016. Yeah, I was thinking of going back. I was just finishing up my fellowship at George Washington University. And it was, yeah, I think it was like around then I was planning like, oh, okay, this is a good time to go. Now things quieted down, you know, nobody writes about me. And then it was kind of like in the aftermath of the crackdown in Azerbaijan that was taking place against civil society activists that started like in 2013. And one of the new targets was this independent media outlet based in Berlin called Maidan TV. There was a criminal investigation launched against them and a document, I think, with 17 names that were that basically were wanted in Azerbaijan for questioning. Not that they were accusing us of anything, but for questioning, for sure. And my friends told me that my name was there. So I was like, okay, maybe this is also not a good time to go back because I don't know if I will be coming back out of Azerbaijan if I did go. And I kind of kept, you know, putting it aside, thinking that, okay, you know, there will be a moment when I'll be able to go. And you know, every time I get this surge of emotions that, okay, now it's time to go back. I, I always make sure that I check and, you know, friends that I have there who have contacts with, within the government tell me that it's not a really good idea for me to go back considering my reputation. <laughs> is, it, is it unusual that you went to Turkey? Because my understanding is that Turkey is essentially Azerbaijan's geopolitical ally in the region. And now there's, there's talk of Turkey aiding Azerbaijan in the sort of latest escalation of fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh. And it would seem that running to Turkey to escape Azerbaijani authorities is counterintuitive, but clearly that's not the case. No, that's not the case. I, I didn't come to Turkey after 2014. I moved here in 2010. 
from 2010 until 2014, I was free to travel, which I did on many occasions, either for work or for personal reasons. So that was the Turkey was not sort of, you know, an, a safe, safe heaven by, by choice. It just happened that way. And I was already here. But on the role of Turkey and the relationship it has with Azerbaijan, yes, it's always had this brotherly love relationship. That's how they call each other in Turkish, Kardeş. It's like a younger brother. Uh, but it's been also a motto. It's one nation, two states motto that they sort of abide by. And it's always part of their diplomacy. Uh, but also, I think it's it's interesting to highlight one thing. You know, I've lived in this country for, I think, you know, give or take 17 years on and off with my university and then work and then coming back here. And I've never seen Azerbaijan mentioned so often in the news than I had in the last 10 days. And I think this also kind of explains how up until now, you know, when you when when I say here in Turkey that I'm from Azerbaijan, people are like, oh, you know, our brotherly country, they say these like funny words that they know in Azerbaijani that have really funny meanings in Turkish, but they don't they didn't know anything about politics in the country. Earlier this month, Arzu wrote an essay where she described herself as part of a generation of war in Azerbaijan, arguing that the ongoing violence in Nagorno-Karabakh is a price her generation is paying. I asked her what she means by this. I was born just a couple of years before the conflict began, really, you know, the 1988, when really tensions started sort of growing. And I am, what, 37 now, and my whole life, Nagorno-Karabakh has been part of my life. You know, I, I don't want to say it's part of my identity because now a lot of the rhetoric around Nagorno-Karabakh is that, you know, it's part of Azerbaijani identity. For me, it's a little bit different. For me, it's how it's been used as a, you know, weapon almost in the hands of the government to constantly sort of diminish the importance of all the other issues that were and are at stake in the country. You know, social problems, economic problems, problems with education, healthcare, human rights, press freedom. And it's really just, you know, I, it's, it's hard for me to understand why no one has said anything about this before from among the public. And I guess the answer to that question is because a lot of Azerbaijanis think of Karabakh as, as, as part of its identity. And for them, Karabakh is priority number one, that that's why it needs to be resolved. And again, the reason why I said generation is because, you know, I come from that generation. I was born in 1983, just like many of my peers. We grew up going to school, learning about Karabakh, you know, having teachers tell us about the war. I had a teacher who was an IDP. He was a teacher of history. And I remember it was in nine, it was 2000. I just came back from my exchange year in the U.S. and he was asking me about my experience and I was telling him all about my school and about my classes and whatnot. And I said, you know, there were also Armenians from the same program. And so I met and we, we talked about our countries and he, you know, I, I clearly remember his face, like it turned completely white. And he yelled at me. He was like, how dare you? How how dare you tell me about meeting an Armenian and becoming friends with them, you know? And I remember just completely losing my shit. <laughs> Forgive me for my language. But I sat there in class, like, completely quiet because, you know, it didn't occur to me. Like, I, when you're that age... He chewed you out in front of the... Class, yeah. In front of the class, yeah. And, yeah, I was completely, completely shocked and... It didn't really, like, I didn't really think about it in, in sort of deep 
any kind of meaning of I just thought well he was just angry because he's from he's an IDP and he's really angry you know that how how does a 16 year old really process that kind of information or being outed like that and then for the rest as well I mean okay I was I, I didn't go to university in Azerbaijan or you know stay much more, spend much more time in the country but again like that generation where you're constantly and constantly and constantly um, told about the war, told about the enemy, how terrible that enemy is, how every year we're reminded of all the atrocities committed. And it's always one-sided, you know, it's, it's, we never talk about the things that we've done. It's always about the things that they've done. And this one-sided sort of constant, you know, they're like brainwashing you from a young age. And, and that's why we're a generational war, because it's this war has been part of our upbringing, our life, our existence and our jobs for many of us. I mean, obviously, I'm not everyone thinks this way in the country, but still it's, it's like you wake up, you, 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 you carry on, but it's still there. Arzu also warned that state officials in both Azerbaijan and Armenia actually risk their jobs at this point by pursuing peace talks. Reconciliation, she says, is probably now inconceivable for the foreseeable future. The problem with this conflict is, you know, because it's been part of the political speak, you know, even if you do come to an agreement, which happened at some point in history on both ends, for the leaders to sell that agreement to the public, you either have to resign, you may lose your cabinet, or you may lose the public support which is what happened in both cases, uh, on both sides throughout the history of this conflict. And the frustration on the side of Azerbaijani government is natural. I mean, if you sit at a negotiation table all this time and you wait for some resolution, surely they have their own mistakes, both sides. And I am not even remotely considering to give the government any credit because I really strongly believe that they could have done this a long time ago, but they were using it and abusing it for their own, for their own benefit. But the certain basics that are, uh, you know, they, they should be taken into account when, when looking at, at this conflict and this recent escalation. And what I'm really worried about is further escalation. I mean, right now the Azerbaijani army is attacking again and you know, if this really blows out of proportions, it's going to be damaging, not just for the two countries, but for the region at large. And, you know, talking about peace building or reconciliation is is going to be impossible, at least not in the near future. And I think this is why this conflict is important and why it's been always important. And it's just um, a pity that not enough attention was given to it. If politics in Armenia and Azerbaijan make it difficult to pursue peace in Nagorno-Karabakh, would it actually be anti-democratic to say to the leaders in Yerevan and Baku, you know, hey, stand down? Kavor Kaskanyan, an honorary research fellow at the University of Birmingham who specializes in international relations and Eurasian politics, told me that we shouldn't think of these political pressures as a popular groundswell, though decision makers do face certain constraints, he says. You should not you should not look for groundswells on either side. This is really an ingrained conflict. I think it was more the idea that you had a change of government in Armenia. Uh, the previous two presidents, uh, Kocharyan and Sarkisyan, they were both from from Nagorno Karabakh. And once Sarkisyan was removed, there was this idea, well here you have a new man from Armenia proper he is this you know, progressive, revolutionary Democrat, and there will be movement 
some kind of movement on the matter. But it didn't happen very simply because the Karabakh issue is as ingrained in Armenian society as it is in, in Azerbaijani society. On the Armenian side, it's seen as an existential issue. And you can trace that back all the way to, uh, to the genocide in 1915. So when Armenians think about Karabakh, it's the idea of never again. You know, we've lost all of that. We've been subjected to genocide. And this is where it stops, basically. So that's the Armenian perspective. Well, the Azerbaijani perspective, from the Azerbaijani perspective, uh, it's, it's also ingrained because of the, of the raw feeling of injustice that Azerbaijanis have at, for instance, the displacement of uh, hundreds of thousands of Azerbaijanis from, from uh, territories around Nagorno-Karabakh proper, uh, plus the fact that you have, you have that Karabakh has, is important in terms of their cultural history. Uh, so it's ingrained in the identities of the two sides. Uh, and I think that one of the mistakes that people, that, that mediators make when they approach the conflict is assuming that they can come to an agreement between the leaders and then, you know, the leaders can, can just present that, uh, that form of, that peace agreement, uh, that form of reconciliation and then, you know, just dictate it or impose it onto their societies. It's more complicated than that. It's, it's unusual, I guess, just because like my kind of intuition is that if you're dealing with an authoritarian state, you assume that the it's the government that's pursuing kind of adventurous policies to rile up the people and not that the people genuinely want war. Well, the dynamic is slightly different on, on the two sides. On the Armenian side, I would say it's more that because leaders are more accountable. Armenia is more is uh, rated more free than Azerbaijan. They have to take into account the very strong feelings that exist in society. But you, you, you also have that in, in Azerbaijan as well. But there also, of course, it's amplified by the fact that you have a regime with a deficient legitimacy that then has to, has to cling on to some other form and as that's legitimacy. And nationalism is, of course, an, uh, an obvious solution. Or the, at least the Karabakh conflict is an obvious solution as, you know, a kind of rallying cry, this promise that I will deliver Karabakh for you. Okay, so we've been talking about the domestic political situations in Armenia and Azerbaijan, but you need only glance at a map to see that these small states are sandwiched between major powers like Russia, Turkey, and Iran. Turkey and the Turkic peoples have played a role in the Caucasus for thousands of years, but Ankara's support for Azerbaijan has grown considerably in recent months. And there are even credible reports that Turkish mercenaries are fighting, right now, in Nagorno-Karabakh. I ask of Orkaskanyan what this means for the geopolitics of the war. Now that Turkey has placed itself on the map, so to speak, Russia will have to talk to it. Russia's stated reason to intervene in Syria was fighting terrorism. You have Libya, you have Syria. Erdogan might have thought, well, you know, if you, if you meddle in my backyard, Syria, I'll meddle in yours. And then we'll talk about the package. It's possible. You, know, you, you can only speculate, but it does make sense if you look at the broader picture. Now, so far, whatever the antagonisms, Turkey and Russia have been pragmatic in their relations. I mean, remember the, the fighter jet that was uh, shot down, their agreement on Idlib. The problem is that whatever agreements they have uh, they have come to so far have been temporary. 
And, you know, they might come to some kind of temporary agreement between themselves. But if you want a full-on peace agreement between Armenia and Azerbaijan, you will need you know, their fiat, so to speak. And that is a completely different issue. Because then you have to delve into the attitudes within the societies. Is it possible that, that there is a military solution here? Could one side just win definitively enough that the thing is over? I doubt that. For a very simple reason, Russia wouldn't allow it. Turkey wouldn't allow it. At some point, there would, there would, they would keep things from escalating out of control. But, you know, that assumes that they would be able to. And the other thing, of course, is that the other thing that's also very important to keep in mind, there's always been ethnic cleansing in this in this war. Does that go both ways or is it is or have Armenians suffered more of that? Well, I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. In, at the beginning of the war in, in, in 1992, the second half of 1992, uh, Azerbaijan was was winning and it had, I believe, taken control of about two thirds of Nagorno-Karabakh. That was ethnic cleansing. And of course, you have the regions around Nagorno-Karabakh, which have also been ethnically cleansed. So people should not be complacent. This is, this is very serious from a humanitarian perspective. Jeffrey Mankoff agrees that competition between Turkey and Russia complicates the politics of the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. In a sense, he says, Turkey seems to be using Russia's own tricks against it. The Turkish-Russian relationship has become very multidimensional. On the one hand, Russia supports the idea of Turkey becoming increasingly unmoored from its anchor in the West in its pursuit of, I guess, what you would call kind of ambitions to be an autonomous regional power. The problem for Russia is that the regions that Turkey's interested in are a lot of the same regions that Russia's interested in. And so there's this competition between them that, that's broken out over a number of areas over the last several years, most notably in Syria, but, you know, we see it in Libya, see it even to some degree in, in places like Ukraine. But in a sense, all of these are, are connected in that, you know, both Ankara and Moscow are trying to generate leverage vis-a-vis -vis one another by their actions on the ground in all of these different proxy zones. I think uh, somebody in Ankara decided that it was a worthwhile gamble to take to try and test what a lot of people for a long time, I think, would have considered to be a Russian red line, which is that Moscow remains the principal power broker in conflicts around its borders in the former Soviet Union. And so far, at least that, that gamble seems to have paid off in the sense that, you know, we, we haven't really seen uh, a sharp Russian reaction. I think the Russians are, are kind of stuck on the horns of a dilemma because unlike Turkey, they don't want to be in the position of completely supporting one side against the other. They would much rather, you know, be the, the, the pivot around which conflict settlement ultimately turns. And that means having reasonable relations with, with both of the players on the ground. And, you know, moreover, as, as much as I think Russia is interested in, you know, kind of keeping the post-Soviet region or as much of it as possible as a zone within which it's the main power broker. It, it's concrete interests in a place like the South Caucasus are somewhat limited, right? Especially because it is involved right now in so many other theaters. And I don't think was really expecting to get drawn in in, in the way that Turkey has, the, the way that Turkey is, has drawn itself in. And so it, it, it's a little bit of a, 
Russia's at a little bit of an impasse, I think, in terms of, of, of thinking how to respond. And so it's almost as if Turkey took a, a page out of the Russian playbook, which is, you know, do something unexpected, try to create facts on the ground and, you know, deal with the diplomatic consequences later. So there, there's, it's almost like there's this fascinating parallel between the way that the two countries are, are operating and seeking to, to influence developments in their, in their shared periphery. Medusa's article from last week about the history of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict by Dmitry Kuznetsk and Dmitry Kartsev offers a very general look at the long durée of the region's history. Most of the text is devoted to modern history, but the first two paragraphs sort of dip their toes in the 11th and the 13th centuries. Some of the criticism of this report, based on the reactions I saw on social media, argued that this focus, even fleeting on ancient history, is wrong-headed. More importantly, critics said, it's also wrong to treat the foreigners who have marched through the Caucasus over the centuries as a pacifying force, instead of treating them as the very instigators of the ethnic tensions now tearing apart Armenians and Azerbaijanis. Jeffrey Mankoff says there's at least one outsider we can blame relatively uncontroversially for facilitating today's conflict. If there's one person I would blame, I suppose it's Joseph Stalin. You had the decision to place this majority Armenian region to make it an autonomous oblast within the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. Now, you know, the reasons for why they did that, I I think, are they're pretty complicated and, and they have to do with internal issues in the Soviet Union. They have to do with the nature of, of uh, Soviet Turkish relations at that point. But be that as it may, right, you, you ended up with this sort of anomalous situation where you had, you know, a Soviet, the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan, which was portrayed as being, you know, the ethnic homeland of the Azeri nation, within which there was a autonomous oblast that was 90 plus percent Armenian, while there's a separate Armenian Soviet Republic right nearby. And so, you know, throughout the Soviet period, you had moments where, and again, DeWall talks about this in his book, where you had mobilization on the part of Karabakh Armenians in favor of transferring jurisdiction over the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast to Soviet Armenia. And of course, Moscow never wanted anything to do with this. And it was only in the last days of the Soviet Union, you know, during Glasnost, where there are lots of other problems that, that Gorbachev is dealing with, where it becomes harder for Moscow to kind of ignore this. And so you get, you know, real mass mobilization around this, this question of, of where Karabakh fits between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the late 1980s. And, you know, th- this is bad enough when it's in the context of the Soviet Union. But when the Soviet Union falls apart, now you've got, you know, two aspiring nation states in Armenia and Azerbaijan that, you know, as, as nation states, they portray themselves as the homeland for a particular nation, as opposed to the multi-ethnic, multi-national Soviet Union. So if you're a minority, especially a territorially concentrated minority in one of these states, obviously you're going to feel concerned about your future life, security, opportunities, and all the rest. And, you know, we see this happening in a lot of different places around the periphery of the Soviet, of the collapsing Soviet Union, right? I mean, around the same time, you've got the conflicts breaking out in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, Transnistria, you know, all of the, what we now call, quote unquote, frozen conflicts are breaking out around this time as, 
you know, these territorially concentrated minorities who are a legacy of the way that Stalin's, you know, people's commissariat for nationality drew the lines on the map are now kind of mobilizing for some kind of self-determination. And so I think that's where this ultimately comes from. It's from, you know, the breakdown of a multi-ethnic empire and the transition to these national states or nation states where minority groups like the Karabakh Armenians felt that their future couldn't be guaranteed within the context of somebody else's nation state. I also asked Thomas Duvall about the role of foreign influence in this conflict. The great power competition between Russia and Turkey might be limiting a wider war, he says, but these leaders are playing with fire right now. In the course of the whole conflict, would you say that foreign influence, mainly I suppose Turkey and Russia, have they been an aggravating force or have they largely kind of kept things in check? I, th- I think mainly kept things in check. Turkey has always supported Azerbaijan, but said it wanted a peaceful resolution of the conflict. But that has changed in the last few years. President Erdogan, I think, sees this as a new front for his kind of more aggressive Turkic Muslim foreign policy and and, and, and is making you know, some very inflammatory remarks towards the Armenians. And, and, and let's not forget that, that the Armenian national trauma is, is not at the hands of Azerbaijan, it's at the hands of Turkey, the Armenian genocide of 1915 to 16, when, when a million or so Armenians were killed in, in what is now the territory of Turkey. So obviously this Turkish intervention has a sort of terrifying impact on the Armenians and, and on their psyche. So it's a pretty grim situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. There's, there's no other way to describe it. Caught between, you know, arm-wrestling great powers and ethnic tensions that have either ancient or modern, and perhaps specifically Soviet, roots, Armenians and Azerbaijanis are deadlocked. Even Arzu Gebullah, who's one of the kindest, most hopeful people I know, says only a future generation will resolve this. Right now, the optimism is on hold. Uh, because I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't want to give up on it completely. So part of me still thinks that, you know, at some point, probably not in our generation, not me, we may probably not see it, but I just hope, you know, the next generations are not generations of war, but and they live in a different, different world. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from four experts about the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the contested Nagorno-Karabakh region. I'd like to thank Thomas Duvall, Kevork Askanyan, Jeffrey Mankoff, and Arzuge Bula for coming on the show to discuss a very sensitive subject. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our only English-language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening, and come back soon. The Naked Pride.